0: Okay, all the lights are on, I'm ready to go, and uh, I'm here now with Zach Gregg. Today is not going to be an art and science of coaching, it's just going to be two guys, two coaches, two athletes having a conversation. So, Zach, Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year, yeah, thanks for having me back.
0: Well, we uh, we have to get back to the art and science of stuff soon, uh, I don't know if anyone said anything to you, but I've I've gotten just some random out of the blue messages about how, you know, people have enjoyed some of those conversations that we've had and definitely want to get back to it. Uh, I have some topic topics that uh, I think would be interesting and not necessarily pertaining to uh, training in January when it's cold outside, you know, could just be some other generalities. And so anyway, all right. Um, I'll ask you the same question I asked Matt Zimmer the other day. All right, we're in a new year. uh, You're training your butt off, getting ready for race season. And um, you hear that feedback? Feedback sounds funny.
1: Is it on your end or mine?
0: I'm not sure. It sounds like it's hard to say. Um, I'll ask you what I started off by asking Matt the other day is – 2021. You got the race a good bit in 2021. I did, uh, yeah. What What's your biggest takeaway for you personally that you're going to be able to capitalize on in the coming year?
1: Um, I think I can appreciate uh, how important recovery is. Um, you know, at the at the beginning of the year, we were we were coaching, we were doing everything we could to get uh, kids on bikes and kids to races. And with my other obligations uh, to the veterans nonprofit, my own coached athletes, um, as well as trying to train, you know, I didn't lay the the foundation that I would have liked. Um, and then some stuff kind of happened throughout the year, uh, some injuries, some crashes, just life. Um, and you know, I I feel like I was a little under recovered going into things, and then I rushed recovery coming out of things um and just it didn't end up as strong or as durable that i as i had been in years past um i'm just getting old man like oh i think please <laughs> so no i mean you just have to you know even even uh at the end of 2021 you know getting getting into group working with ben again um ben is is a is a pusher in his coach style he, he gets every drop out of you and If you're not careful on your own end, doing the workout as they're supposed to be, uh, as they're written, and you push on top of him pushing, you know, doing 10 extra watts on on whatever, um, you can really dig a big hole. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in two weeks. It happens in six weeks. And suddenly, you know, you're doing a power test and it's lower than you expected, or you know, you're going down to Tucson with these kids, and you do the shootout, and it's not what you expected, and things like that. And it's just like that that constant reminder of you know you can only adapt and recover from so much, and it's way less than what you can actually do. Um, we're we're great at doing, we're not so great at sitting still and recovering and adapting. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you and I have talked about, if I remember correctly, how you know there's days you go out on the bike. The workout says X, but you feel Y. You know, you feel like, you know, but I can do more. Uh, and as a coach, you know in your head, but that's not what the moment's calling for. The moment calls for you to be right here. And if you're right here, that's going to set you up to be there. You don't need to be there now. You need to be here exactly. right now. And that's we even have to learn that lesson as coaches uh, to follow that prescription because you have to have that long-term view or else like you said that accumulation of that extra work there's a price to pay
1: yeah and moving to boulder and riding with all these awesome dudes who you know might just be that two percent stronger on their endurance rides and things like that like all of that catches up with you so and well, i kind of glossed over it but i had some welcome, to my, stuff wo- early. welcome
0: yeah. to my world when i was training <laughs> with you on a regular basis
1: yeah, right Hey, that's your own doing, man. I I never, I never had to ask you to ride. That was, <laughs> well, it
0: was, uh, I enjoyed it and I do miss that. Uh, but it was, it was, um, it was a good experience for me while we did that. And, uh, but yeah, those are lessons that you have to learn for your own self. And you'll be able to share that with other people that you work with down the road. Like, Okay. Hey man, I get it. You want to go out and work hard and push yourself, but the moment right now just calls for this and we'll, we'll get after it even harder as time goes on. Um, and there's a word there that you mentioned, you and I've had this conversation before in private about durability Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: how it doesn't matter what sport you are playing, how important durability is to be able to withstand the work and the stress and if you are really pushing it, like I know you do, and athletes at the professional level in any sport, everyone's pushing it. All it takes is one thing to throw you out of balance. And if you don't adjust properly, uh, it just takes a little bit longer to 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 get back into that rhythm you, you, you're accustomed to. So as you were going through that stuff, because I knew that you had crashed a few times during the race season, mm-hmm. and, and we all want to take care of ourselves, but then get back to our old self. You mentioned it a little bit, but how did that experience change you a little bit? Because it, it's frustrating on one hand, and it's humbling on the other. But if we don't learn from it, then you know we're we're going to struggle in the mm-hmm. moment and down the road.
1: Yeah, and so it was. Uh, we we went to Europe after, uh, pro Nats and you know, I would uh, I'd done all right. You know, I'd, I did pretty well at amateur Nats, did all right at pro Nats and felt really prepared for the Europe trip that we were going to do. Um, and I'd never raced over there. So you hear, uh, more horror stories than success stories by far. Um, and I felt that I was pretty prepared. So we went over there, we were in like the Northern part of France, um, and Belgium. And the first, the first race we did after a couple of days was a uh, Kermess and it was rainy and I made the break and I got on the podium and life was good. And the next day, uh, I crashed really hard, um, of no fault of my own and, uh, landed on my left hip pretty hard. Um, and then there was an opportunity to race the next day and it was another rainy Kermess and I crashed oh. mostly my fault on the same hip. And, um, it basically doomed me to endless suffering and no, like, uh, actual power output for the rest of the trip. So it was, you know, bottle duty, chasing back on, being in the caravan, like just really, really having uh, a really, like a long string of tough days, um, in this incredibly difficult environment. So, um. And then, so on top of that, you know, you're, you're dealing with the, the crash when it's right in front of your face, but then it's the travel, you know, it's a hip. So you're sitting and it just gets tight and it's terrible. And then we're doing a 12 hour plane flight back to the U S and then getting back, we had like three weeks until Joe Martin. So it's like, you, you just have to keep going, right? You can recover as much as you want and respect the the fact that you're injured, but you also can't just like sit on the couch. So Um, yeah. And then going to Joe Martin had a bad experience and then green mountain was halfway. Okay. And then finally got a chance to, to take a true rest. So I think it was, uh, it was one of those moments where you're just like, uh, okay, like we're just going to have to ride this out and it's not what you want it to be. And it's not like ideal. Um, but I think that was the first time that I've ever really had one of those like long, stretches of like being injured and like uh not being able to do anything about it other than just like train as best you can so
0: it's a little bit like a slump you know some of it is some of it 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 it's externals inflicted on you. Some of it is our own sort of doing, and we put ourselves in this position where we're we're in a slump and we're having to adjust our outlook and our role. You were mentioning, hey, you're on bottle duty. When I know before you went to Europe, you're like, I'm going to get after it, and I'm oh, yeah. really going to I'm going to push myself and see what I can do. Uh, but then things happen, and you have to adjust and adapt. Um, you and I coming from a different sport background where You do encounter slumps, Mm -hmm. and we've been through this before. You know, it's not like it's anything new. A lot of cyclists uh, have never gone through a slump, and they experience slumps for the first time in this sport. What have you found helps people understand that slumps are a good thing, okay? You know, long-term, if you uh, handle Mm -hmm. it properly, how do you – talk with people to get them through those those uh because it's a mental thing more than physical like the ability's still there the skill is still there it's it's that you know the mental side of things that you put up on yourself when you're going through a slump to get uh before you get back to where you want and can be how have you handled those situations mentally and then as you worked with athletes of all ability levels as a coach, you can see the slump clear as day, but mm-hmm. then helping that person to get through the slump, to see through the fog that, hey, the sun's gonna shine again soon. You just can't not be so hard on yourself through this because, uh, and, and just learn from it. So how do you get through it yourself and then how do you talk people through when they're going through a series of sl- uh, of a slump or maybe a couple of failures that, that are frustrating them? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it comes back to like controlling the controllables in a lot of ways. Where, if you know you're you're injured or the the power's not there for whatever reason, um, you can always focus on doing a specific role that helps out your teammates within a race. Um, because a lot of that stuff it doesn't take you know world-beating power output to be a really good team player and doing a lot of work. Um, but uh, I mean, that's kind of like the simple answer but i mean off the bike there's so much that you can like uh hunker down and do better on as far as recovery and nutrition and your you know gym work or your prehab or you know there's there's so many things that you can get an a on that report card when even if you're if you're racing at a a d or a c minus level you can still find success and just like keep moving forward um and i think there's like great power in that right because like if if every day you're having a really good day and it's success and you're never like having true difficulty over the course of like weeks or months or things i don't think you're ever going to find like your 100% right you're you're never going to know how to go to that point of just like frustration and like possible misery and you know back out of it or push through it
0: well it proves that adversity is good for us that's when we really learn who we, who who we are and what we're made of um and when and when you're working with young people especially it gets really tough to help them through those moments their upbringing society you and i both know perfection is a lie it's not right. it it does not exist it it shouldn't be what people aspire to and you have kids nowadays so focused on, I've got to get all A's, I've, I've got to look perfect, or they think in their head they have to, when in fact making mistakes and failing and having some setbacks and going through adversity. A lot of times we create it ourselves, but it's even better when it can come from something else, that resistance, meeting resistance on a consistent basis. If you can meet the resistance, see it for what it is, find a way through it, around it, under it, over it, whatever it takes, that, again, back to that fog of, of the slump, like the sun's going to shine again soon. Mm-hmm. You just have to figure out this moment for yourself. And so as a coach, how do you help other people do that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, so. I listened to your podcast with Matt. And it's funny how the three of us are almost uh, too similar with some of these ideologies. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I don't even think it it, part of it comes from you, but it's not. I think some of it is just, you know, our upbringing or our own way we approach things. But um, yeah, I liked your your concept of shortcuts. Right. Where it's there's there's only so many options if you want to get from where you are to where you want to be um where it the easiest thing to do is you know take a hard right or a hard left and go do something else but you know the the shortcut is actually going a straight line and that that really means like hunkering down and doing the things that are necessary really well and just trusting that that's all you can do um so i think yeah working with young people especially like these last couple of years it's it's really important, I think, to remind people to just be present. And even, even if it's being present and not happy with your current situation, like you have to spend attention and focus and time on where you're at to understand like where you can actually go and how to like get, get out of the slump or just continue the good times or, or whatever it is. Like you can't look for this total other thing and just jump on, on this other path. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not a shortcut.
0: Well, hopefully it helps people to appreciate the momentum when they have it Mm -hmm. because momentum is really tough. Uh, momentum shortcuts to success, the fundamentals. These are things that have been on my mind a lot lately in general, but naturally going into a new year, you're thinking about, okay, what does it take to be successful? And it, the fundamentals will never go away. And the better you can be at the fundamentals, then that helps you be in position to get the most out of yourself and extract everything out of yourself. Um, so, yeah, uh, that whole notion of shortcuts to success, uh, it is a straight line. You might meander a little bit, but mm-hmm. you, we always come back to the fundamentals. Those are the things that that matter the most. And if you can win the day, then that's generating momentum, and you you literally have to generate it. It's not going to come. Yeah, it do, it's not going to come from somewhere else. You have to generate that momentum. And how do you do that? And when you're younger and less mature and less experienced, it's tough to see how that that daily process is going to help you gain that momentum. I know many years ago I used to have to uh, take up another activity get my mind off of it because mm-hmm. I. I overthought things, and I still do to a certain degree. But I would overthink, and the best way for me to stop that, because uh, it it can get to a detrimental level. Uh, I would read. I would go read, and I would. I read a lot of books, and when I was younger, and just for the purpose of taking my mind away from the thing that is uh, just frustrating me. So I mm-hmm. think I think reading is something that and and ma- and it was reading that had nothing to do with the thing that I love to do you know it was it was just reading stuff to take my mind off and escape the thoughts in my head and take myself somewhere else and at some point too I think it's important to remember I use this analogy as a coach and that is uh you you have to believe the evidence that exists in your ability like you get to a point where you have success And even though you're striving, and you might not be struggling with self-doubt, you're striving to be even better, even when you have a list of good results. And you do. You personally do. So does Matt, and so does a lot of people. If they look back at the success they're having, they have evidence. You know, they have evidence that, wait a second, I'm pretty good. And I I use this analogy sometimes when I'm in a one-on-one meeting with athletes, and that is if they are struggling with confidence or self-doubt is, okay, let's go to court. I'm going to take you to court. I'm going to take you to court right now, and I want you to defend this mindset you have that you can't do something. And uh, I'm going to come prepared because I've got evidence, you know, literal evidence of your success in these areas that tell me you can and you will. And uh, you argue your side, and I'll argue mine, and we'll see who wins. And that usually, that, that that usually shuts people up and it just, it just like, oh, I haven't thought of it that way because we forget about our success because we've moved past it. And, and so anyway, I try to help people to change their perspective about their own selves of, of what they've done in the past, even though we always want to be better as, as Matt said in the, in the episode the other day, uh, and we as coaches use this as well, you should only compare yourself to yourself. Okay, that's everything. It's not just your bad side of, or the things that you struggle with or or maybe you're failing uh, or having a hard time to overcome, but you should also use the evidence you have of success to help you get through that, that adversity or slump you're going through. It's helped me, I can't tell you how many times my past success is what I've had to turn to and go like, but I've done this before. I've got evidence, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do it right now, but I'm going to figure it out.
1: Yeah. And there's power in that, right? Where you can have that same level of success without necessarily the numbers being there or, or whatever. Like it's, it's innate. It's in you to figure out how to do it. And maybe you can't win the same way, but you can still win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that.
0: All right. Well put a bow on 2021. Uh, Certainly your one, big accomplishment that I know that you're uh, building on going into 2022 is that, yeah, you, you look, I mean, we're on FaceTime right now, so I'm getting to see this national championship jersey hung up on your wall back here. Uh, Tell, tell the listeners how meaningful was that accomplishment to you? And looking ahead in 2022, what are your plans to capitalize on that? And what are you really, aiming for in the coming year.
1: Yeah, winning winning the Time Trial National Championship was super special. Um, I think it was <laughs> for me personally, it was more uh I don't want I don't want to say like relief, but it was it was just like a a factor of of execution and like uh you know, like like you said, a, um I knew I could do it, right? So It would for me personally. It was like, all right, yes, like nice job. Now on to the next one. But you know, for the the veteran community that I work with, um, for all those people that have helped me come up through the sport, like that uh, that level of excitement that I was able to share with those people um, was really special um, and something you know you you like expected, but not not to the level that it happened, where it was like you know everybody felt like they'd played a part because they totally had and. Um, that's what made it like really important. And especially, you know, on the back end, a couple months later, like continue to be, uh, something that I love being able to share with all these folks, you know, um, it's a a point of notoriety now and, and something that I'm motivated to defend and, uh, work on, uh, to, you know, hopefully get on the podium at pro Nats or, you know, whatever, whatever the next level up is from, from the amateur Nats jersey.
0: Yeah. Isn't it as an athlete, we sometimes overlook it and we don't experience until afterward how other people have a piece. They feel a sense of um, they they have joy for you and what you accomplish, but they they feel like there's uh, they have a little bit of ownership that like like, hey, I, I maybe they did or did not play a role in you actually doing it, but they had an emotional stake in your success and the effect right. that that has on other people
1: yeah it's cool and I think in in this sport like any any ability to like create that sense of com- community and like for people to actually see some return on their either emotional or fiscal investment in someone else um, is really special you know we the sport is is very uh, there's very few wins in it um, and so yeah absolutely everybody should celebrate whenever somebody has success
0: mm-hmm Yeah, I think it's important. Um, So season ahead, you alluded to, you know, defending and, I mean, the real cake, you know, the cake we want to bake and and get to enjoy and savor. I know for you, well, I'm making an assumption, but but I, I feel like you alluded to it just now, getting on the podium at pro nationals in the time trial. Uh, what's it going to take to get to that? I mean, obviously more power, more strength, more speed, but what's it really going to take to get to that point? And then have you imagined the feeling you're going to have if you do that?
1: <laughs> so I think uh, the first of those questions is probably easier to, to uh, get into. I mean, you know, I think in, in the U.S. there are so few opportunities to – execute a technical 40 minute time trial, um, that you have to take each one seriously. So, um, there's some early season races, uh, with longer time trials in them. Uh, and then there's Redlands and tour of the Gila. Um, so those races are all like game on, like everything needs to be dialed in, um, with the hope of, you know, winning or getting on the podium at those races. Um, and I think that level of execution, like, obviously the power is going to come up, um, I'm doing a lot of off the work bike on maintaining an aero position, um, for 40 minutes. It's technical. Like your, your position deteriorates to some extent. It's just the same thing with power output. You want to, you want to stay as close to hundred percent as long as possible. Um, and yeah, so pacing is a big thing. I think equipment, there's not much to gain, which is nice. I can go out and, and just worry about power output and my own execution. Um, do you think that
0: do you think that you will be putting a bit more time on your time trial bike than say last year do you feel like that through the year last year you put in sufficient enough too much and what is a normal progression and amount of actual on the time trial bike work that you do
1: yeah i think um i'll definitely spend more time on it this year um It's, you know, I think living in certain places, it's very difficult to get on the time trial bike enough and you really suffer in that position maintenance or, you know, in because the time trial position is kind of demanding. You don't get enough pedal revolutions to feel comfortable in that kind of cramped position. So, um, no, I actually have my first time trial bike workout of the year today. Oh, good um, timing. Yeah. Um, might have to put some fenders on the bike, but we'll see. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the more you can replicate your goal event in training, um, even if it's just doing some longer tempo efforts or whatever it is, I mean, you just get more comfortable, and then on the day you can execute better. So, no, I've I've been pretty pretty bad my whole like career about not riding the time trial bike enough and just understanding um, body positioning and pacing and things that are, you know, more on the preparation side of thing um, and being you know, well-dialed on race day, and then I can just kind of wing it. So we're not going to do that this year. (laughs) Um, I'm actually really good at that, though. So don't... (laughs) You can do it. You don't have to have a a perfectly flat, uh, long road to to train on time trials. I mean, I lived in probably two of the hilliest places on the East Coast and uh, figured it out.
0: Yeah, well, it goes back to that point we make a lot as coaches is if you can make the uncomfortable over time, make it comfortable where this is a familiar feeling, this sensation, this, uh, the fluidity that you need to perform at a high level and produce power. Uh, Yeah, you have to experience that again and again and again to to learn yourself, learn your body, Mm -hmm. learn everything that you need to know to then be ready in late June in Tennessee in near hundred degree heat, uh, like that is, that's an extreme. I think it's an extreme environment, uh, and you have to be ready for it. And that means Mm -hmm. putting yourself in uncomfortable situations again and again and again.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and talking about the, the, the feeling of, of winning one of these time trials, I, I think I visualize things really well, um, compared to a lot of other people. I can memorize courses. Um, I can probably draw you the pronats course from memory right now, um, along with some of the other courses, you know, like that's, that's something I don't think people spend enough time on. Um, and like you said, what if, yeah, what if, what if I do achieve the goal and get on the podium, like already, already kind of understand that feeling. Right. And in the same way you can kind of, you can kind of chase it, right? Like that's the, that's almost just the validation. You've already experienced the feeling for yourself when you're you're sitting here thinking about it well and it's i think it's a powerful thing
0: yeah it it sure is uh and at the same time though uh think about the company you're going to be among if that is accomplished yeah that's a the company is uh you know that's some high cotton there because it's probably going to be some guys who are racing at the world tour level
1: right yeah, and every year the level of just ability and execution in the time trial goes up um, exponentially, and so to to build on a success that you've already had at that level takes exponential amount of attention attention uh, to every detail um, from execution, to equipment to position. Like, there's if you if you maintain position, you've actually gotten gotten better on that top ten list. Um, so to, to jump from, you know, the, the bottom 10 to the top three, uh, is, is a big jump, Mm -hmm. right. And you can see it on paper. It's not, you know, it's not one thing you have to get better at everything. Um, and I think that kind of challenge just is the way that you improve as a cyclist, you know, like, uh, you don't, yeah, you don't get to just say, ah, if I had 10 extra Watts on my FTP, like I'll be Lawson Craddock. No, man. Like. Because he's going to come with more power next time and he's going to execute better and he's going to get 10 times as many long time trial race days as anyone in American cycling does because he's on a world tour team and because he hasn't been on a world tour team forever because he's awesome, mm-hmm. you know? So like um, that kind of thing, you're like, you're always, uh, you're always playing catch up. So you really have to be dialed in on, on your goal and, you know, continually like checking yourself against. Where everybody else is, and just where you used to be.
0: And I think this hammers home the point that you don't have to be, and you usually won't be, great at one thing or even just two things. You just need to be really good at a lot of things, and there mm-hmm. cannot be any weaknesses in any of them. Not at that level. You know, I mean, you could be in the top 20 and have lots of weaknesses and be in the top 20 and maybe not have dialed in the entire approach. But to get on that podium, it means everything has to come together on that day. But that's a whole other subject of on that day. You could still be doing all the little things right. But on that day, you've got to be able to produce. And I think these are strategies that people can apply in all other types of applications and endeavors that, rather than focus on well if i just improve my climbing this is going to happen for me or if my sprint my top end is going to be this it's like well that'd be wonderful but how about if you improved three percent two percent even one percent in some cases in these five other things then what you know uh and i think the 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 pursuit of being a, a an excellent time trialist forces you to look at all these variables where in some of the other disciplines you you should but a lot of people don't uh and i think that's the lesson for everyone because we're not talking about we are talking about time trialing and time trialists but how that can be applied in so many other areas of the sport
1: yeah and i mean if you if you want to look at the amateur nationals uh race uh i won by two seconds Mm. now there was a big gap to everybody else but 2 seconds is 1 watt over that distance. Mm. That's one that's one detail missed, right? That's, you know, not doing the turnaround as well or, you know, having your pacing off by just minute amounts. So, you know, every every time I kind of get annoyed on, you know, putting the the big chain ring on because there's like a million steps to it or waxing a chain or, you know, spending the money on some little 3D 3D printed part or whatever it is, like You just kind of have to remind yourself that, no, there's, there's, you have to give yourself every opportunity to win um, because everybody else is doing it, right? There's no, there's no secrets anymore with the amount of stuff on the internet. It's just how far are you willing to take Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. to, you know, have your own understanding of what everybody else is doing and then apply it to yourself.
0: Well, you just let me know if I need to put on a 40 K time trial to help set you up uh, the pro <laughs> nationals. I'll, I'll promote one if there's, if they're lacking this season. Uh, Heck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, those are definitely fun events to promote. Okay. So let's, uh, let's pivot to something else. Uh, mm-hmm. been thinking about, and I've been wanting to know, uh, how the experience has been for you thus far living in Boulder, Colorado now. And I think the last time we, we talked, you had just moved there. You hadn't been there for too long, but now Mm -hmm. that you've been there for three or four months, uh, how, how's it going? Uh, what are some of the changes and adaptations you have felt and experienced? And, uh, yeah. What, what's that been like for you so far?
1: Yeah, I think it's been a really positive experience overall. Obviously my whole family's still back in Roanoke. So I miss them, but getting back there is not too bad with the Denver airport being so close. Um, but no, it's been really good. Right. I think this is the first time, uh, in cycling that I've had true training partners, um, and access to a wide community of people with similar goals. Um, whether, you know, whether it be triathlon or running or cycling, like there is something about sharing an ideology and a mindset and, you know, having a similar purpose in how you manage your day. Um, so I think it's been really good, you know, and, and you can kind of appreciate it, uh, in the, you know, frame of a uh, collegiate cycling too, where all these folks are together for the same purpose. And maybe most of them probably wouldn't be at at least McCrae for, uh, school had it not been for cycling and that shared interest. So I think that's been really positive. Um, I've learned a lot about altitude, um, how it affects you some of the other considerations that you have to make um i'm back here uh after a month at pseudo sea level right being in tucson is like three thousand feet and then virginia sea level and um every time you come back it gets a little bit easier um to adapt your body is like ready to ready for it um but this being my second time back I'm just going through it again, hmm. and uh, the air is very dry. Hmm. Like you just have to drink constantly. Um, you know, I'm doing some sauna stuff, and you know, making sure I'm eating a big salad and watching my iron intake and those kind of things to try and like expedite the process. But to a certain level, you just kind of have to go through it.
0: Yeah. What um, uh What altitude are you living at?
1: I live at 5,800 feet.
0: 58. Okay. Uh, what? and I'm familiar with Boulder and sort of the terrain that's East. And then of course the, you know, the foothills and then, whew, then you can get really high up. Uh, you know, what is your, what is your typical range of elevation that you're, that you're training uh, in and how's that been going as you're training at these levels that are going from a mile high all the way up to nine ten thousand feet?
1: Yeah. So I think the, the lowest you can get uh, within like a hundred miles, is like 5,400 feet. So you can't escape altitude um, in like the Boulder, Boulder Denver area. Um, And yeah, you can get up, I think a little bit over 9,000 feet within like two hours. Um, And I think once you get adapted to the altitude, you can kind of get up to 8,500 and you just have to be a little bit careful. Um, But when you first get up to that altitude, I mean, your your body's just like, man, what is going on? So it's it's like a huge shock shock to the system.
0: I know the times that I have been there to Boulder and ridden. Uh, of course, living here, I mean, where where I live, I'm at about forty eight hundred feet at my house on Beach Mountain, and of course, we can train a little bit over five, but those opportunities are kind of limited. A lot of our training is. Uh, At and below 4,000, which really is nothing compared to always being over 5,400, 5,500 feet and and above. But the times I was in Boulder, I know that uh, I usually stayed at over 6,000 feet and I felt really good between 6,500 and and 5,500. But you start to notice some change. I did personally around 7,000 feet. For you personally, where do you start seeing that drop-off, which everyone's going to feel it and experience it. And for people out there who are traveling to, say, altitude from time to time, it's hard to get it through some people's heads that you're not the same person. None of us are, you know, at that altitude. Uh, What's it been like for you? What has sort of been that experience? And how do you help other people understand What's the right approach if you're going to be going to altitude, how to manage your efforts when you do that? Because it's not the same at being at sea sea level. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd say 7,000, 7,500 feet. Uh, There exists an invisible barrier that you go through (laughs) where the fun stops, Uh, especially if you're pushing hard. Um, So I always, you know, have elevation up on my screen whenever I'm doing any kind of targeted intervals. And I try my very best to stay below seven if I'm doing something with like a, a demand for high quality. So, you know, with, with tempo, you can kind of just take a couple watts off or whatever, watch heart rate. Um, but with anything above that, you you really got to like kind of stay low, um, otherwise you can you can end up going way too deep. Um, and most of my recommendations with people coming to altitude are around making sure that they're managing their effort not not necessarily based on feel, but using some actual data um, to kind of hold themselves back. So the first, it's kind of like a, there's kind of a curve to it, right? Where you get to altitude and you have like two, maybe three days where you're feeling pretty good um, if you're not acclimatized to it. Um, and then you hit where your body's like, oh no, we're staying here. Okay, we've got to make some changes. And the next Week It can be really rough. Um, doesn't those first
0: couple of days really trick you those first few days trick you, don't they?
1: You're like, I'm actually Colombian. Like I can do this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. And so it, it has to do with the blood volume, um, and just, you know, hematocrit levels and things like that, where, um, when you're at high elevation, the relative humidity in the air is so low that you have, uh, a lower level of blood volume and basically over those the course of those three days, you're basically dehydrating, Um, and then you get to your true like hematocrit and blood volume levels. Um, and reality kind of sinks in and, and it does take, I mean, 10 to 30 days to fully feel like you're, you're used to the altitude that you're at. So, um, you know, I think there people really need to think hard, uh, about doing races like tour of the Gila or, uh, mountain bike nationals or things like that on what their preparation is beforehand. Um, cause there are some things you can do, especially for one day races, um, to, to ease the transition. Uh, you can get there really late. You can do a lot of sauna training. Um, you can make sure that you're really well hydrated, um, and then there's some supplements, uh, you know, beta alanine, things like that, that'll help uh, kind of with those initial efforts in the races. But, you know, there's no substitute for three weeks of being at altitude um, where it's, you know, it bellies up to your vent. So hopefully you can get a couple quality sessions in that last week. Um, but yeah, you, you have to be really careful and, and pay attention and understand the altitude Um, otherwise you can just leave, you know, really tired or really disappointed in your result and not really understand why.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of important events, uh, nowadays, especially nationals. And if you're a mountain biker, uh, happen at altitude and high altitude, you know, not, I mean, 6,000 feet is, is nothing compared to nine or 10. And we encounter high altitude a little more often than I wish we did. Uh, for really important events and we hammer home some of these basics of this is what you should expect and these are the little things they're not little really they're big uh, when it comes to hydration and eating more carbs and staying off your feet Um, and you know those how those little things matter much more at altitude than it does at sea level and as I've said before Sometimes you just have to live it to learn it. And, but this goes back to one of those shortcuts to success is that when you have people who have experience with this, who know what they're talking about, not only from experience, but just from the standpoint of perspective and, uh, and, and knowing the science and the, and the knowledge that's already out there, when you're hearing this information, apply it. You know, don't, you're not the freak. You know, you're just, you're not the freak. So apply these things. These are shortcuts, all these fundamentals, all these tips, all these, uh, best ways to do things. Those are the shortcuts. And certainly at altitude, if, if you fail on those things, probably not going to work out for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I'm, I'm a great example of that this fall. Like, um, the November, December, you know, doing some some super fun group rides on top of all the other training and things and just not remembering that your recovery is impaired at altitude and the, the numbers are different. You know, your heart rate max is a little bit lower. So, like, riding around at 150 BPM is not the same as what it is at sea level. Um, those things can catch up with you, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I like that the, nobody's really the exception, especially when you're dealing with, you know, uh, separated oxygen particles in the air that you're trying to like absorb and utilize, like everybody kind of reacts the same unless they were born at altitude or if they've spent a lot of time there. So, um, our, our director who lives here says it takes three years to be able to go to and from altitude with some level of kind of flexibility. Um, and I kind of agree with that. You know, I don't, I don't think that I'm going to be the exception to that rule. Like I never grew up at altitude. This is kind of my first long stint up here. Um, We did do a training camp in college um, at altitude uh, at uh, Albuquerque um, and we did everything wrong. Mm -hmm. So we went there, (laughs) we uh, immediately started doing big mileage. We rode super hard every day. Um, One guy uh, has lived at altitude a lot. And he basically like throttled us the entire eight days we were there, um, and yeah, I mean, we probably got no benefit from it, and we're exhausted for two weeks afterwards. Mm. Um, but you know that's just the way a lot of people approach training, and that's all we knew how to do at that time mm. so yeah.
0: well but the bigger point is if done right, if done right, it can be of tremendous benefit,
1: totally, yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to coming down for Redlands and some of these other races. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know necessarily, it's not like an advantage in, in high power outputs, right. Cause you, you don't, you can't produce as much power at altitude. Um, but it does help the things that I'm already, you know, uh, pretty decent at the, the long kind of sustained efforts, uh, because you have a higher, uh, hematocrit level, um, and yeah, just general aerobic capacity uh, benefits a lot from being at altitude.
0: Oh, well, I see the difference even where I live when I go wherever to sea level. I mean, I see the changes. Uh, I can yeah. tell a difference. I see it in my resting heart rate. I see it in my HRV. I see it in my overall endurance and power output. My, like, Huh, ah huh, this feels really good. There is a, mm-hmm. it isn't much, but it's enough. And then conversely, when I come back, the metrics look a little bit different and uh yeah it's fun to go through that experience because it teaches you a whole new set of things that you can use and apply and I guess through all that you know the saving grace I think is man when I go to when I go to sea level or lower altitude at least you know I'm going to feel pretty good when I'm down there
1: totally yeah that's that's the the mental advantage right (laughs) of like, oh, I'm coming down to race you fools, <laughs> you know? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, and I, well, and it, again, I, I've just have seen a benefit even where I live, which is not anywhere, ne- you know, near as high as you, but there there are changes that can be made. And there's, you know, even if you don't live at high altitude or higher altitude like you do, there's things that people can invest in and uh, and do that at sea level. Uh, and that's a, I think a topic for us maybe to explore on the art and science of coaching, but, uh, uh, it's a, it's something that you can put in your tool bag if you're willing to make the investment and, but do it the right way because you can definitely get yourself into trouble.
1: Yeah, Matt, Matt and Ben might be good special guests for that. So I actually bought Matt's tent in preparation for Gila last year. So it's just sitting in my closet. Um, I think I'm going to play around with it when we go to Tucson, just so I don't have to like. Uh, adapt again to altitude after like team camp in mid-March. I can just ju- jump straight back into training, but um, yeah, he's the master. He did some, some crazy stuff in the altitude tent, uh, I guess three years ago at this point.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. All right. We're going to pivot again to a, a different topic. Uh, so for those that don't know, you and I worked together for a year. You were my assistant coach at Lees McRae college. Uh, you, you, uh, transitioned in May of 2021 to you you know you've been a professional cyclist this whole time but now you're also doubling up and working for Project Echelon helping uh, veterans mm-hmm. and I wanted to follow up with you on uh, how that's how that's been going since since May and the things that you're involved in with the veterans and uh, how you're helping them and Uh, how it's helping you and how rewarding that is to, to get to work with that space within our sport.
1: Yeah. So I, um, I had, I had originally been doing it, um, through COVID times, um, uh, working for the nonprofit as kind of a stopgap because other people had life events coming up. Um, and so I just took on coaching, you know, a handful of other people's clients, um, and so through, you know, writing and applying for some grants, um, it ended up becoming, you know, uh, a decent, you know, 20 hour week job. Um, and you know, so I was doing that while we were working together and then it kind of, you know, uh, grew into something I could do along with, you know, my own co- coaching business, um, pretty close to full time. So right now, um, if anybody contacts project, echelon, um, I'm their first point of contact. Um, so I do all the onboarding of veterans. Um, we will, uh, we take anybody who's, uh, who has served in any capacity, doesn't have to be combat. Um, and all they have to do is go through a couple steps of the paperwork process. Um, and we can offer them a series of industry discounts, um, from the partners that we work with through the nonprofit and through the racing team. Um, and then there is, uh, a step further than that where we can offer them semi-individualized coaching for free um and so that's uh also kind of the the main thing that takes up my my focus and my job so uh in the same way that uh coaching cycling athletes um is not just writing their training plan uh working with veterans is not just writing their training plan um you know most of these guys are a little bit older um and so cycling is their favorite hobby. It's not their profession or their job. And so, you know, helping them understand all the things uh, related to cycling and training and recovery and nutrition um, has been super fun and rewarding uh, because, you know, they see progress and unlike 18-year-olds, they'll tell you about it. And they're super grateful. Um, <laughs> not that 18-year-olds aren't, but they don't always tell you. Yeah. And so, you know, that that side of things has been super fun. Um, and I've worked up slowly um, to coaching about 80 of those guys Ooh. Um, in different capacities, right? So a lot of that stuff is kind of led by them as far as communication goes. Um, but yeah, it's it's fun. The, the phone stays blowing up. Um, with what those guys are you know doing and what they like and changes that they need and things like that um, and so now uh, through some kind of further grants and I realized that scaling is, mm-hmm. is a Absolutely. huge issue yep um, we have moved towards a, a cohort model where so every six months we're taking between 25 and 30 veterans and we're giving them that individualized level of coaching um, with the goal that through education that we can offer them after six months, they can graduate and use more, uh, pre-made training plans and resources that we have available to them to like self guide their coaching. Um, and so the first cohort will start on February 1st, and those 25 people will be divided into regions with the goal at the end of each cohort being that the region will do a, an event together. led by the kind of veteran leader within the group and um, will be attended by a couple of the elite racing guys. Um, and so, you know, as with anybody, right? Like you have that goal and you don't want to be the guy who, who shows up to the event in the the least best shape, right? You want to be the guy in the best shape. So um, having, having that level of commitment with uh, a goal in mind at the end is very powerful. Um, you know, it, it allows you to help, help people stick to a training plan. It gives you subject matter to cover uh, whether it be the demands of racing or just how to, you know, a general level of preparedness for any cycling event. Mm. Um, so that has been super fun. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, it's working with a totally different section of the population and how they approach things. Mm. Um, you know, dealing dealing or helping people go through life events that I have no experience with, right? Like that's a whole another level of of coaching and just being like a, a good human that, that cares about other humans and is there, you know, as much to just listen and understand as it is to offer advice. Like mo- these guys have, have gone through, you know, most of them a lot of success in their life. So when, when they come with a problem, it's, it's more about understanding and and not necessarily offering some magic fix of advice, you know? So I, I think that part has been awesome. And rewarding and and they teach me new stuff all the time Oh yeah Uh, definitely yeah
0: definitely well i that that thing you talked about with um the training and and the the regional you know having those having those events that you're going to have and graduating those individuals who go through the program i'm going to tell you right now be prepared for that to blow up like Mm -hmm. it's that's going to blow up in a great way just be ready because I can see that for sure, blowing up reminds me a lot about my experience and what I uh, witnessed with Team Red, White, and Blue, and what they have done to get the, commu- the the veteran community just engage in physical activity, and how they have these different chapters all throughout the country, and and each chapter has its own local leadership, and once you once you educate the right people and you level them up. That You're talking about some highly motivated people that you're working with. They're highly self-motivated, and, and they're doing it, and they're going through life, and they've been through, a lot of them, literal life and death situations, that they just have a perspective that is not like any other person that you get to talk to. They're so um, full of life stories and uh, a wider perspective. Most of them have traveled the world, been everywhere, But then you get right down to it. And I had this conversation with Ben Day the other day how rewarding it is. Number one, like, if you just think about you and I, what the bicycle has meant for you and I. Like, what we, the reason we're doing all this is because of a bicycle, a bicycle, (laughs) man, you know, and what it has afforded you and just you and I. And then you work with veterans and you're around veterans and you hear them tell you that how much the bicycle means to them and that it saved their life, literally. Like, the, just having that to turn to, like, whew, my bicycle, the bicycle hasn't necessarily, I, I can't say that it saved my life, it's, right. it, it, but it, it probably does in a lot of ways that I, I, I'm not aware of right now. But for them, for a lot of them, it literally did. And to get to work with someone like that on a regular basis, they have this whole, oh, so many cyclists miss this because they're pursuing it for really selfish reasons, you know, to, to be better and stronger and all this. But those people, the veterans, they're doing it because of what it really, how it makes them feel better about themselves, how it makes them feel better about life, how it keeps them here on this planet for right now. What's that like when you experience that with them? and, and the weight of it all. Cause I've, I've, I've heard those stories and I've been riding alongside a veteran before who says that. And it almost takes my breath away when I hear it.
1: Yeah. I think the, the first couple of times I've, I've heard that, you know, cycling and uh, training has has saved my life. Like it's, you take a step back, right? Because you don't, you don't even understand like where you, where you have to be for, for that conversation to even happen and that rela- realization to even happen. So, um, no, I'm I'm just super super grateful for for those folks for for reaching out and getting involved and like taking a chance on themselves to to allow cycling and, and Project Echelon to have an impact in their life. Um, but no, I mean it's 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 like a real thing, you know. And there's a lot of there's a lot of research behind the mental benefits of aerobic exercise and the the magic of goal setting and setting achievable goals and being consistent with something and having a larger community where you feel personally invested in other people's success right um and you know having having events that you can go to where you're wearing the same kit and you're meeting these people for the first time and you already you already have something in common with them so um i think that environment is is super constructive and, and powerful for anybody, but for people whose whole life was centered around camaraderie and teamwork and things like that, for them to come back into normal life, um, I think it is a very isolating uh, transition for them in a lot of ways. So yeah, whether it's, I mean, uh, red, white, and blue does tons of different sports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we try and keep our scope pretty small to cycling just cause that's what's familiar to us. But you know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be any one sport, but having, having a community is powerful. I mean, I moved out to Boulder cause I, I wanted a community, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's not, this is not an isolated thing. Um, but yeah, to, to contribute even a small portion, uh, to these guys after, after all the things that they've sacrificed for, you know, our freedom, our safety and our peace of mind, like, um, it's, it's just like a, a gift and a blessing to even be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, you feel like you grow as a human so much more than, uh, the level that you can offer someone else. Um, when you're in in a position like I'm in. So, um, no, it's, it's been awesome. Wow. Oh, so and
0: it makes you step back. And I do this even without what we're talking about now, even without, getting to work directly with veterans now, I step back a lot of times and have to ask myself and, and, and also remind myself, like, what is this really all about? What's this about? This It's really never about the, the race, you know. It, there's always, or the outcome, like, what is this really about? What, what am I supposed to learn? How are we supposed to grow? What does this really mean, what we're going through? And, boy, working with them really makes you aware. I think it makes you more aware of it and appreciative of just how valuable our community is because it's really small. But once you're in it, uh, the best way to get the most out of it is engage with that community. And I, man, I love what you're doing. I'm glad you're doing it. I'm not glad you're not around here with me every day. I would love to get the opportunity to talk with you every day. Totally. Like we did before and get the train together. But uh, man, I'm happy for you. And I'm excited that you're doing what you're doing, and I'm excited for your 2022. Can't wait to catch up more often throughout the year. and follow your success and and hear all the stories. And uh, thank you for being on Under the Sun today. We'll do a we'll do an art and science coaching soon.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Give us some give us some ideas. We've got plenty of our own, but we want to hear what everybody else wants to hear too. <laughs> yeah,
0: good stuff. All well, right, thank you. thanks, Zach.